Welcome to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. I'm Katrina. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're back after almost three months. And it's been some time, hasn't it, Kat? It has been some time, a busy time. It has. Yeah, Yeah, there's been a lot going on, not least the fact that I got married in August. Yay! It was was lovely. Yeah, Yeah. it feels so long ago now, but um, yeah, two months ago. Yeah, well, congratulations on behalf of all our listeners. Mm. Um, I was very lucky to be there uh, with my husband and... I loved it for many different reasons, um, but but from I guess an unfurling perspective, it the whole day just felt very infused with with nature and the natural world, both being in in Devon and where you chose to to do it, but also just in your readings and yeah, so it felt felt like a really unfurling day. <laughs> so, it did, didn't it? There were a few yeah. moments I was thinking, oh, we should have recorded this yeah. <laughs> for the next episode, <laughs> but we didn't. Um, but yeah, no, it was lovely. It was lovely. Um, yeah, so that's been a big life event. Um, but we've both, just both generally been busy, haven't we, with yeah. coaching accreditations that we're working on and, and other things. So, um, yeah, we're conscious it's been a little while. We did in, well, actually in July, we recorded a podcast episode with the Association for Coaching, mm, yep. which was released in September. Mm, yes, yeah, it's called uh, Coaching Through the Lens of Nature. Geared towards coaches or people in organisations that, coach or use coaching skills um but if you're curious you know we'll put the link in in our in our notes and you can have a listen to that too mm. yeah no it's fun to do that and it was nice to kind of take the unfurling vibe onto a different platform actually yeah yeah um, absolutely and infuse yeah thinking around coaching and leadership to a degree mm. as well yeah with, with some of this stuff yeah and particularly around the the climate change crisis was the the focus of the um the episodes in general um Mm. Mm. yeah so today Mm -hmm. economics hey (laughs) we've got here it makes me Mm. laugh we uh I remember when we did our trailer I think I'm right in saying this um when we did our trailer back in July 2020 I'm pretty sure we we said we would do something on economics (laughs) it's, it's been on our list for a long time and and perhaps, you know, the fact that we've taken time with it might might be interesting to look at. But, yeah, I'm really delighted we're finally here and, and looking at what we can learn from the natural world um, um, and some ways of thinking around economics. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we'll probably touch on this more, but like for me, certainly part of the reason for us not having done this episode sooner was just around feeling like we needed to know a certain amount mm. to, to be able to legitimately talk about economics. Mm. I know that's something we've both talked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I've, I've, kind of, I think it's just similar with the law, you know, in economics for me. Yeah. You know, that I have this imposter syndrome that I feel like I need to know a lot before possibly putting it out there. Mm. Um, and so I think I've definitely had some resistance to to looking here, and and there's nothing like a deadline. You know, this morning I was uh, doing some, finally doing the research into what we're going to talk about today. And actually felt really excited about it. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, it's sometimes silly how our fears can get in the way. Um, and we want to, to share that with you. And we know that we have a really diverse group of people who listen to Unfurling. Some of you will be, may even be economists. Some of you may be working with economics in your daily lives, um, professionally. Uh, others, you may you know, have, 
have concerns around what even economics is. Um, so just know that we're coming from this with a, well, certainly with a beginner's mindset and openness, um, wanting to share. Uh, so there's no minimum bar that you need to have met to be listening today. Yeah, absolutely. That There is no minimum standard. I, I love that thinking. Um, and we certainly don't need to be experts or anywhere near that to, to enter into this. And actually, I think for both of us, that really became clear when we looked at some of the etymology mm. and meaning behind the word economics and connected to that actually ecology, because they are they both have a similar root. Um, and, and economy is all about so there are kind of Greek roots and Latin roots and so on, but it's all around the idea of household management mm. and how we look after our dwellings, our abodes. And I think for both of us, that's really kind of opened up thinking around this because we all have a home in one way or another, whether that's a group of people, a physical space. And thinking about it as home suddenly almost gives us a kind of permission to speak mm. into that, actually, and a responsibility to speak into that. Mm. Yeah, I remember this morning, you know, doing my little Google, you know, about what the online etymology was. And I'll, I'll just read it just uh, oh. here and we'll put it in the notes as well. Economics, yes, as you say, kind of comes from Greek and Latin. And the, the first one that comes up is 1580s, um, the art of managing a household um, from French. And yeah, as you say, that kind of idea of, of thinking about it as home and then relating that to ecology you know, which is uh, the branch of science dealing with the relationship of living things to their environments, which kind of comes from from German. It, it really suddenly brought to, <laughs> ironically brought home to me <laughs> that these are related and that, you know, we are, even in our mere existence, we are part of economics. We are part of the natural world. And I think it's a really helpful frame as we go through this episode to think about, yeah, how we are being with our home, whether that's our internal or external through to the globe. So, yeah, just echoing what you've said. Yeah, and this this idea of, well, certainly the kind of root of economics and ecology being connected, um, it makes me think, so earlier this year in the UK in February, the Desgupta review was um, report was released, and this was a report commissioned by the UK government, I think, in 2019. Um, and Professor Desgupta led this review, and um, it was really a kind of independent review on the eco- the economics of biodiversity. So, um, really, like, how do we how do we think differently about the idea that that economic growth? can only be measured using GDP and instead how do we how do we bring ecosystems and the natural world into the heart of economic thinking and David Attenborough he talked about this report is really bringing economics and ecology face to face and and asking how do how do we make them work together because to date economics is you know it's often been thought about as quite a separate process kind of happening over here somewhere completely disconnected from the natural world um, so this review is a real kind of stake in the ground for thinking, how do we think, act and measure economic success differently? And off the back of the review, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson said that this would be at the heart of decision making going forward and that it would be brought to COP26, the climate conference that's happening right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'll be really interested to see how that shows up. You know, we'll put a link to the report because it's I mean, it's 
I think over 600 pages so it's quite a quite a read but there's some really interesting recommendations and kind of thinking that has come from that report and that is influencing leaders around the world so yeah hopefully it will be present in decision making at COP26 but yeah going back to the idea that economics and ecology they can't be seen as separate processes Mm. anymore Mm. they're both about our home how we relate to them the relationships Mm. that form them and if that's true we really need to think differently I think yeah and so touching on thinking differently today we're looking at uh, one way of thinking differently when it comes to to economics yes and with that in mind we invited Peter Lafort on to this episode. So Peter, he'll introduce himself in a moment, but Peter is someone I came across through my work at the council and he's doing some really interesting thinking around donut economics and kind of principles of, well, just really thinking differently about economics and asking different questions. So yeah, excited to hear what he has to say. So without further ado, let's join Peter. Great. So it's with um, pleasure that we welcome our next guest, Peter Lefort, um, who I've connected with through my work at the council. And we've done a bit of work together exploring donor economics, which he will um, be telling us more about shortly. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Regina. Thanks for having me. Great that you're here. So um, Peter is well, was previously the Carbon Neutral Sector and Partnership Lead at Cornwall Council. Um, and he'll be sharing some of his experience from there. Um, but Peter, I believe you're at Exeter University now? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm working for the University of Exeter, setting up a new network called the Green Futures Network, which is uh, effectively a, uh, a new mechanism to support communities, businesses, policymakers to engage with the climate and environmental work that the university is doing. Some really interesting stuff being done, but often it's quite inaccessible, maybe because because the academic world is is not one that everyone feels comfortable with or familiar with. Um, But also there's just so much information out there. It's very hard for people to navigate that. So part of my work is to help people translate and find what's relevant for, for whatever it is that they're doing. I love that. I think that'd be really helpful with us today, actually, you know, helping us translate and kind of make things easy. So thank you for being here, Peter. Um, We always ask this of guests, and I'm curious to hear from you about this. You know, how are you inspired by the the natural world? And how has the natural world influenced your work? Yeah, I love this question. Uh, It's a really nice invitation, uh, I think. Um, So I'm fascinated by networks and the way the world operates. Um, So I've been working in environmental network building for over a decade. uh, And that really supports, I think, uh, a perspective on the world that is really uh, influenced by systems, um, how people come together, how things work or how things don't work, more to the point uh, in this kind of of world. Uh, And I think the more I learn about how the natural world works uh, the more I am just blown away at the the way complexity which is a, a a huge challenge we face in how to hold it how to understand it can be really um uh perfectly modeled by just what's outside our front door all the time 
Um, I mean, you look at patterns, uh, systems, things like you see the same pattern on a sunflower as you do on a galaxy. Mm. Um, thinking about murmurations of starlings, and you know, I'm really fascinated by how how we find dynamics with other people, and and, and kind of how we uh, find strength in in those kind of networks, and, and noticing how these dynamics play out in the natural world gives me so much inspiration and hope because mm. it's really easy to overthink things and, and it's really easy to lose hope and think that everything we're doing feels overwhelming and feels impossible. But there's so many great examples of yeah, really resilient uh, patterns and, and models and systems out there that, uh, and I'm well aware I'm only scratching the surface in terms of my understanding of that, but it's, it's an incredible source of inspiration for me. I love that. I'm kind of almost like hearing a magical quality to that as you speak. Um, just, yeah, and a real appreciation of, of hope. I think it is magical in a way in that it's so radically different to how we're taught to experience the world in very mm. linear, uh, controlled ways of mm. we do this and then this thing is going to happen. Mm. Um, whereas, um, you know, actually thinking about emergence and how things change and, and how change is not a linear process sometimes it does feel quite magical because we have to let go of that part of our brain that wants to under, understand everything and wants to control everything. And there's a certain vulnerability in that that I think taps into something about magic that's that's really special. Yeah, I love that. It, it makes me think too of the need to bring other ways of thinking into this creativity, curiosity. And as you say, some of the things maybe that we're not encouraged to use, particularly in, you know, um, traditionally, well, certainly perceived this way, quite dry topics like economics, um, like policy making, but actually there's so much opportunity for creative thinking. Yeah, I did. definitely I, I would agree. I think with, you know, I, I'd be the first to admit that I'm not uh, a trained economist, economist. Uh, I can't even say the word. I'm not a trained <laughs> economist. But there's, um, you know, there's a difference in terms of uh wanting to understand something by reading about everything that's gone before and then being able to say right well this is what happened this is how it works and I think that acknowledgement of of the past is really useful but actually it's much more important I think to, to see how it relates to the other parts of the world and other parts of of, of the system and to, to understand how these things start to relate uh, and understand where the gaps are and I think that's that's what brought me to um uh, economics is not something I thought I would ever be particularly interested in but it's you know it's on the periphery of a lot of different things um, and, and, and kind of coming to it with a an appreciation that it it is not everything but it is a really important part of how a lot of our world functions um, I think has given me a kind of a, a healthy appreciation for uh, for the role it can play. Mm, yeah fascinating so we're here to think about economics a bit today. It'd be, it'd be great to hear kind of your thoughts on economics, but particularly through the lens of the natural world. So I know you've spent a bit of time thinking and working on this. How is the natural world, yeah, how does it infuse your work in economics? So I think what brought me to this was, um, again, this understanding of the natural world as a um, a, a place of real inspiration you know when you think when, when something just feels impossible think of, well how does this work out there um, and growth I think is a really interesting example of that and that's one of the things that brought me to this to this space uh, you know 
economics is not a concept that that everybody deals with on a daily basis consciously but there are there are certain themes around linear economic growth that are extremely uh you know uh, permeable in terms of you know they get into how we experience the world i do a lot of work with businesses uh with councils and this assumption that that's the default you know we need to grow that line on the chart needs to keep going upwards um it's it's often not necessarily informed by anything in particular but it is very um uh hard to shake but again, we look at the, the natural world and growth is obviously a huge part of that. And there's a lot of uh, analogies and metaphors drawn between the growth growth in the natural world and growth of, of the economy. But I think the key difference is that growth in the natural world is growth with a purpose. And it's not often linear and it's not often uh, infinite. It, things grow and things decay. And there's a, a, there's a, a fluidity to that. Um, and economies over time grow and decay, but very rarely within an economy does anyone plan for that decay. It tends mm. to be uh, something that's not particularly um, uh, aspired to for very good reasons. So I think there's some uh, there's some real warnings in in there around this uh, assumed uh, importance of linear economic growth. That that simple line, partly through. You know, it's distilling what is an incredibly complex process uh, and series of systems into um, you know, an oversimplified line or mechanism or model that, that, that is terrible at really understanding what is going on. Um, uh, and one of the first ways I got into this was through uh, um, the circular economy, which I think you know, now is, is very well understood in looking at uh, the way things are created, the way resources are used, not in a, a linear way where we, we create, we use and we discard, but in a circular way where once we've used something, there's then a regenerative process where maybe it's through recycling or reuse or upcycling. There's lots of different terms that that comes back around. I think the circular economy is a great, again, metaphor to help people understand uh, different ways of thinking. Um, and, and thinking more more holistically and more emergently. I think it's still quite limited because, again, it's oversimplifying the process. We cannot, in terms of, you know, in, a, in a material way, we can't reuse everything uh, that we have. Uh, and there's a lot of waste in these systems. And when we draw our nice little round circles, we often uh, leave those things out. Um, so the next part of, of my journey in this was, was moving from that to uh, donor economics, which uh, so donut economics is a concept that was created by uh, the economist Kate Rayworth um, a few years ago um, when she was working at Oxfam. Uh, and it's uh, an incredibly simple, but actually the more you understand it, complex uh, model for uh, looking at our economy in a very different way. Um, and this can be our economy at an incredibly local level, looking at a, a, a region or a county, or you can look at the whole world. And the principle of it is imagining a, uh, a, a ring, a donut, um, and on the outside we have the, the planetary boundaries. So the things that we need to sustain in order to keep the planet habitable. So this might include um, uh, our oceans, uh, it might include um, air pollution, carbon emissions. Uh, there's there's a, a huge array of, 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 of measurements there. And then inside the the inside ring of the of the donut is the social foundation so this is the part where 
uh, we have to make sure that every person on the planet has what they need in order to be able to to thrive to to, to live their life to have uh, you know every uh, human right that is um that is necessary for them and the point of this model is about balance is about the balance between those two sometimes conflicting tensions are uh, in that we you know we could go all one way and uh, use no resources and protect the planet, but we would exacerbate inequality in a huge degree. We could go completely the other way, give everybody everything that they need, but we would very quickly use up our finite resources. So the donut is that is that ring in between those two boundaries, uh, that that safe space for humanity, um, and that as a as a different way of thinking about. Uh, economics changing this this linear line and, and kind of bending it round to itself so that we can see actually it's it's a system it's not something that we can imagine is going to continue in a particular direction forever it's fluid it will change um, I think it's an incredibly powerful idea uh, for thinking about what economics actually means in the 21st century mm. yeah there's lots there Lots I could pick out. You you mentioned the word thrive. This is about thriving. Um, and I think that's really important. And going back to your thinking on that upward line on a graph, it, there's something about thriving and not just growing, um, which is much more appealing as, as something to work towards, actually. I love that it brings a humanity into this way of thinking. Yeah, it's a humanity and it's, uh, it's a connection to all parts of of nature as well uh, you know yeah absolutely i think thriving is the is the key um a, again it's a word that can be overused i think in a lot of ways but this idea that um thriving doesn't have to mean growth we don't have to keep getting bigger and bigger um we often want that for economy but we wouldn't necessarily want that for uh, other parts of our lives but it's a it's it's a it's a byword it's a more it's an automatic trigger that we're that we're fed all the time all the time this is this is what we want i mean this is how consumerism works we we want more and we get more and then we're told that we oh we don't want that thing anymore now we want this thing and it's 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 very pervasive but the it works because it's simple we can understand growth but thriving is 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 a slightly more nuanced idea that is sometimes hard to to uh, uh to, to quantify I'm just thinking of, of this then kind of being translated into real life, as it were. Um, and I know you've spent a bit of time thinking about this at Cornwall Council, particularly, um, which is a, a local authority in the southwest of the UK. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that, about how you've experienced donor economics being used in practice, whether it's from Cornwall or from another context? Yeah, I think Cornwall is a really good example. So this was uh, a, a, a county council that um, declared a climate emergency and then thought, right, what do we do with this? How do we actually respond to that in, in an appropriate way? And one of the first things was thinking about, well, the way we currently make decisions is not conducive to an emergency response. Um, and, and part of that, which is not exclusive to Cornwall Council at all, is... Um, again, this idea of economic growth being the default. It's it's the thing that has the most precedence in our decision making. And while we might acknowledge that other things are important, it often comes back to that. So if we make decisions in a very traditional way, it's very hard to uh, to make any choices that don't have economic growth at their centre. 
But if you declare a climate emergency, there's an inherent uh, acceptance that, well, that doesn't work anymore because uh, uh, economic growth isn't the thing that will enable us to thrive. We also need to protect our environments, uh, ensure that uh, we have what we need to keep our uh, residents healthy, uh, that we have uh, enough food. So the decision was made to adapt a version of the donor economics model um, to, to, to come into the, the council's cabinet decision-making. So all decisions at cabinet level, which is the, the kind of the part of the council that, that makes the key decisions on how the business plan is going to be achieved, what the budget is going to be spent on. So, you know, significant um, uh, uh, kind of authority there um, using a different model to make decisions that would look at all of the different metrics in those decisions. So look at the planetary boundaries, look at the social foundation, and for each area, um, when a question or a decision was being made, think, how will this decision affect that particular area? Um, and so there's a lot of work behind the scenes to uh, uh, to support uh, councillors and officers to uh, generate answers to those questions. Um, yeah, uh, it needed to be very simple. It needed to be very um, user-friendly. But what we came out with was this model where... Um, people could then see a visual representation, this donut, and see a kind of colour-coded indication of it. this decision. Here's, here are the negative impacts we think there are going to be, and here are the positive impacts that we're, that we're likely to see. And it was, I think that part of it is incredibly important because what it does is it moves away from uh, just focusing on the positives uh, and acknowledges that in, an, in a complex system, which we are in, and especially when we're thinking about the climate emergency, there is no perfect solution. There's no decision that any of us can make about anything at any time that isn't going to have negative consequences somewhere down the line. And that's okay. We need to be liberated from that and from the anxiety that that can create, which is particularly hard for elected members because you know any decision that they make that might have negative impacts, there's going to be a backlash to that. Um, but what this model uh, has helped them do is 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 put that in context and say yes, there might be a negative impact here, but we believe that is outweighed by the the positive impact that this decision is going to have in other areas. Can you can you give us an example of this in practice, like just to help the listeners understand how that looked once it was applied? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one example is is thinking about um, uh, a project called the Saints Trails, which was a um, a uh, an active travel. Um, uh, program looking at installing new cycling routes and walking routes uh, and so you can imagine the uh, you sort of visualize the donut there's a lot of green uh, indicating good uh, around uh, reducing carbon emissions mm-hmm. um, uh, improving access to nature uh, for residents but it's not all green so if we're looking at building s- infrastructure there's going to be biodiversity loss because we're going to put cycle paths down. Uh, we're going to change the way land is used, and that can have a negative impact on maybe the amount of carbon that uh, a particular area might store if you're changing it from a field or a hedge into uh, kind of a tarmac path. Also, there might be slightly more um, kind of tangential impacts, like it might increase crime if we're creating areas that are uh, unsupervised uh, and their people might be there alone late at night there's the potential that that could increase crime. And that's not to um, uh, 
there's, that's not to criticize anyone or demonize anyone or, or, or stigmatize anything. It's just acknowledging this is how systems work. Um, and I think that by acknowledging, yes, overall, we think this is going to have a, a, a benefit. Um, it also allowed uh, those potential um, negatives to be made conscious because otherwise we, we wouldn't have looked at them and 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 there's a lot of work in concepts of emergent strategy that talk about this idea of what we look at grows if we only look at what we understand that's the stuff that focus that we focus on that's what we measure and that's what grows it's only until we look at the things that we don't understand that those can can thrive as well and so if we look at what we don't understand need more information about Mm-hmm. then we can mitigate those negative negative impacts as much as possible. I mean, we can't mitigate everything, um, but if we predict that it's going to be biodiversity loss, okay, well, how do we uh, how do we make amends for that? How do we increase biodiversity elsewhere and have a, a, a net gain in that in that in that in that respect? Yeah, what I love about the words you've used a few times, acknowledgement. You know, acknowledging what's going on. There's a, a real sense of um, responsibility and choice in this way of looking at things, as well as the hope and the thriving that you talked about earlier. Um, so I guess as you step back, as you think about the outcomes that you, you witnessed and were part of, where was the beauty? What were some of the challenges? And what was the learning with this work? Um, I think beauty is in changing the way governance can happen, which it's something that's particularly beautiful to me. I'm very interested in governance, but I, I guess for people who aren't to, to um, maybe explain that a bit, change doesn't happen very often. Uh, you know, we're in, we're in systems that are very rigid uh, and are very um, hard to shift. But actually, if you can just even slightly change the way decisions are made, Mm-hmm. um yeah at a, a local level level national level whatever that might be that's an incredibly beautiful thing in terms of the hope that it can instill because mm-hmm. you can it's not perfect the way it's used is not perfect and I don't think anyone would pretend that it was inside Cornwall Council or any other organization that is using is using it but it's an indication that things don't have to stay the same and I think that's incredibly beautiful uh, and, and there's two parts of that one is um it helps us understand our uh, priorities mm-hmm. so again traditionally that's going to be linear economic growth um and and that might still be the case but it's moving from a um a hierarchy of priorities to a system of priorities um and, and that is an incredibly uh nuanced but important shift that actually creates so much possibility for imagination and for new ways of looking at the world that is is really exciting um, and as well as a, a shift in priorities, it's also a shift in, in how we understand knowledge um, and, and starting to accept that ignorance is not shameful. It's not something we should hide or hide from. It's something that we should be clear about, own and uh, and change and, and understand what we don't know. I think there's a real danger in, in economics, in, in climate change that we have to understand everything before we take action. And it's an incredibly paralyzing um, perspective. But actually, once we start to think about well, what do we need to know? What's the what's the bare minimum? If, if as an organization, we are going to meet our values and our mission, what do we actually need to know in order to do that? It's not everything, but it's probably more than we do know. So let's focus on those gaps and start to fill them 
and understand that ignorance is not necessarily a problem, um, but it can be a, a kind of a guide, I think. So that, I think, was beautiful. I, it, I mean, it was definitely challenging at the same time, and it's challenging because we're not changing everything at the same time. These these models, you know, in, in uh, economics, they're only models, and all models are wrong but some of them are more useful as the, as the saying goes. Um, and, and so they're only as good as the people who are using them. Uh, and so, you know, the challenge is these ways of thinking don't change overnight. Um, it takes a lot, a lot, a long time and it takes collective resilience to be able to do that. Like the murmuration of starlings, these networks, it takes being part of uh, an infrastructure and, uh, and a network to be able to have the confidence to to change and be led by others and lead others, and and that's really difficult. Um, you know that that definitely takes a lot of time. Um, sorry, what's the third part of the it's question? It's okay. It was it was a long it was a long question. Um, so I guess as you step back from that, so looking at the beauty, the challenges, and just perhaps maybe from reflecting just more personally, like what what you've learned from from your work with donor economics. Yeah, so I think what what I've learned from that is um, is that you don't have to you don't have to re- replace the model uh, immediately. You don't have to if if we want to change uh, uh, the way our economy functions or the economic models we use or, or any kind of models that, that 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 we want. I think I was very much in the in the perspective of. Um, uh, you know, we need to let go. We need to let go of these models that we're currently using, and 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 shift to these other ones. And I and I think ideologically that is what I believe. But actually, starting to see how change is going to happen is it, it can actually start really really small. Um, and and it's this idea of we we can just start to make the existing models obsolete, um, and then they will they will drift away over time, um, and and even. I mean, even in the last couple of years, I noticed the way uh, uh, you know people are talking about uh, economic growth and 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 how you know actually you know infinite growth on a finite planet doesn't exist is is a much more common uh, idea now than it was a couple of years ago. And I think I've also learned how uh, powerful an idea like donor economics can be, you know, which is something that uh, is still new. From a, you know, an economic model point of view, it's incredibly new. Um, but but this, uh, I could fill my time talking to people about donor economics who, who uh, have you know read things online and or, or, or you know, seen a, a talk that I've done and, and, and have contacted me. And I'm not even part of that world officially. We have the Donor Economics Action Lab, uh, who are doing some amazing stuff. And I know you know they've got so much interest uh, that they can't respond to, which is which is fantastic. There is so much enthusiasm for new models and new ways of looking at the world because people understand that that our current one isn't working. And I think I really learned the power of an idea. Uh, we don't have to have uh, okay, here's the answer. Now go away and do it. Yeah, some people need that, and some people want to be told what to do. But the majority of people I speak to are just in love with this idea and it comes back to that what we're talking about before about magic and 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 i do think there's something in that around actually here's something that is different and it's working and it's being used and there's something really exciting and magical in that whether or not uh this is the thing that we're talking about in five years time maybe there'll be something else but regardless 
donor economics and, and, and the conversations that are happening now are a, a key part that will have given this the, the imagination to get to that point. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I loved what you were saying earlier too about the idea that ignorance isn't shameful. Um, and actually that links back to something that Katrina and I have talked about, that big, scary topics like economics, climate change, international development, whatever it might be, can feel very exclusive, can't they? And um, people don't feel like they have permission or the language or the background or whatever it is that's needed to be part of that conversation. And so that means we miss out on all the voices we need to be part of this. As you say, if we're building networks, we need everybody to be part of that. And I love how inclusive these conversations feel to be I'm, I'm kind of on the edges of some of these conversations and I feel part of it even though I have no background in economics um, and that feels really healthy um, I also love the idea that kind of with this work perhaps the questions are as important as the answers yeah that resonates hugely uh, and I think the concept of permission is is incredibly important uh, the permission to look at things differently and and the permission to not know um and again i'm, I'm drawn back to the the metaphor of the, the murmuration of starlings because i think it is really powerful when we're talking about um uh, how we work with others uh, I, I was reading some studies around how those murmurations work and apparently each starling is kind of aware of the six or seven ones around it and it follows them and and, and they follow it and there's something in that that's that's huge that speaks about efficiency, I think, and this idea that no one is carrying the whole thing, and they take turns being at the front, and and by being part of that smaller cluster, they don't have to know what's going on on the other side. It, it doesn't matter because they're connected to it. They're intrinsically connected to it, and also means that they can coast and that they can conserve energy, and that's a huge part of how those uh, those dynamics form. Is a way of of, of a group being more efficient than people in isolation and I think the same is true for the networks that we are a part of whether that's a, a, a kind of a, a network of, of, of kind of mutual interest or whether it's a network like an organization like a, a local council where different people have different roles and different functions and not everybody has to understand what everything else in, that, that's going on but there's a level of permission that needs to be given to, to really believe in that network um, and I think one of the problems is that we intrinsically know that something's wrong with a lot of the networks we're a part of, networks of of overconsumption and, and economic growth and many of the organisations that we are, are, are in or around. We can tell when something isn't quite right and we don't feel like we've got permission to really question those ideas. So when we find ourselves in a in a space that that does encourage that, I think it it unlocks something within us that's that's really important. You touched there on um, councils and, and organisations. I'm conscious that we have listeners who um, may be listening as an interested individual, or perhaps as someone based in an organisation or a community group. Do you have any? tips or thoughts on how those listeners might draw on the principles of donor economics in their own work whether they're in an organization or an individual yeah uh, i mean i would definitely encourage people to read the book and and uh, donor economics and there's lots of great videos and resources out there um, i think for me one of the most important things is it's an invitation to step back and think about why do we exist 
as a community group, as an organization? What is our what is our purpose and, and how are we trying to get there? Um, and, and how does uh, how do our actions contribute to that? Because it can help then start to think about what do we have an impact on and, and, and what don't we? What do we need to know and what don't we need to know? And I think there's a there's a, an almost a, a paradox in in starting to hold complexity in that if initially it feels really overwhelming when we start to understand we're part of this system that is just impossible to understand and is so huge it can uh, at first point feel like well what's the point of doing anything but actually what complexity can really help us understand is that it, it liberates us from feeling like we have to do everything we have to know everything because we understand we're not responsible for everything in that system but it can help us really focus on okay, here's what we can do. Here's how we can slightly shift and nudge that system and how we can contribute to it and how we are a part of it. And it can really help organisations, big or small, understand their potential impact in that system and how they tell their story of their impact, how they tell that to others to bring in funding or support, but also how they tell it to themselves and how they understand um, uh, you know, their, their their role and and what they're trying to achieve and that, just because the world isn't changing every day, it doesn't mean that they're failing, that they are part of that. They are creating the conditions for change. And I think that's, uh, for me, a really helpful way of, of, of looking at it is that we, we can't control everything. We can't control all of the change we want to see. But if we can contribute to creating the conditions, then that's when these new ideas can emerge. Thank you. So you've mentioned Kate Raywell's book. You've mentioned um, the donut economics action lab and I guess as we draw to a close I'm curious about two things um one is any other resources you think our listeners should look into and what are some of the key things you'd like your our listeners to to remember or take away so I think the the other resource I would recommend is the work of um uh, Adrienne Marie Brown who is a an, an incredible uh, activist and author um a book emergent strategy is mm-hmm. is a huge source of inspiration to me um which looks a lot about um how we can learn from the natural world uh, around around biomimicry around how change happens um and i would h- highly recommend that to to any individual or organization that is uh you know wanting to find that permission to look at the world in a different way um in terms of the the kind of the key uh, the, the, the takeaways. I think what my, my invitation is to is to create space for yourself to to do this work of of stepping back and looking. I'm not going to give a particular tip or solution to that because it is hard and it is complex, and I don't think that should be understated or oversimplified. But it, it's an invitation to to really think about what isn't working. For a lot of the work that we're doing, certainly in the environmental space, we know what we need to do and we've known what we've needed to do for 10, 20 years, but it's not happening. But we keep looking at things from a linear perspective of change. Well, if we keep going along this road, it will change and it will and it is, but it's very, very slow and it's too slow. So what we need to do is is, is think about why isn't it working? Why are these things not happening? What else is going on? What are the blocks in that in that system? And how do we come at it differently? And I guess it's an invitation. It's um, this word permission again, 
to just completely rethink it and and notice the assumptions the biases the patterns that we get stuck in um, because until we do that until we notice them in the same way that until we notice our ignorance and the things we don't know enough about we're not gonna we're not gonna change it and it's this thing of what we look at grows so really think about what is it that you're looking at I love that and I have a slight wry smile on my face because Elizabeth's been talking to me about donor economics for about two or three years now <laughs> and it took me doing this recording to actually I spent two two and a bit hours this morning reading and listening to some of what you did and some Kate Mary Ross, um videos and her website and so it took you know it took that for me to actually kind of sit down and like well what is this you know and and to admit my ignorance and, and some shame around that and actually I texted Elizabeth beforehand I was like I'm really excited about this episode like there's so much to learn and I'm kind of uh, echo what you've just shared about creating space um, for people and, and something that I've really appreciated in the way you've spoken today is I'm sensing you just kind of treating people and seeing people as as responsible that you know people can make choices to learn to to look at more difficult places um that there is empowerment and acknowledgement and I think it's you mentioned the word tension earlier about the donut itself um and I think that's really powerful to talk about these things and not just the hope the hope is really important as well but there felt like a real maturity um in the way you were speaking so I just wanted to name that and appreciate that um, thank you. Thank you. It makes me think of something else, if I can add. Yeah, uh, I do. Please if do. If that's all right. Um, around control um, and hope. We often we often align hope and control in very similar ways. So the more control we have, the more hope we have over, over, over where things are going to go. But what of a lot of the work that, that I'm looking at, and I think don't economics and, and other uh, really interesting ideas helps us understand is that we don't have as much control as we think we do. And it's really important to realise that because we need resilience and resilience in, in one way is, is um, understanding what we have control over and what we don't and not putting our energy into things we cannot control. But a lot of the work I do with organisations and, and others, people are still using the language of control. Okay, here's our net zero strategy. Here's how we are going to reach those. Mm. And it's it's the assumption that we can control every part of that journey. And I'd much rather people had those plans than didn't. But the reality is we're not going to be able to control everything that happens. We couldn't control having a global mm. pandemic. We're not going to be able to con- control the climatic changes we're going to see in the next few years mm. and beyond. And there's a really nice, a, another resource I would recommend to people to look at, some work by the University uh, of Sussex, a guy called Ian Sterling, who looks at the difference between controlled transitions and caring transformations. Um, and we're in a kind of a paradigm of controlled transitions where mm our response to the crisis that we're facing is to control a transition from one state to another that's effectively the same, that's keeping the same dynamics in place, the same status quo, the same problems that got us there in the first place, when actually what we need is a, is, is a series of caring transformations that are uh, changing the whole system. And it's a moving away from controlling and knowing where we're going to go and how we're going to get there that is not only rooted in inequity it's also wildly unrealistic because we can't control it but an acknowledgement that we don't know what the answer is going to be we don't know what the future look like looks like we don't know have all of the solutions just yet but we need to acknowledge that the path has to be a different one and i think there's there's some real beauty in that that move away from uh the sometimes slightly misleading hope that the sense of control can bring us Mm. Uh, and actually I think the more radical and magical hope 
that uh, the transformation can give us and that understanding that we cannot control it, uh, but we are adaptive. We are an incredibly adaptive species. The human race is adaptive. The, the natural world is adaptive. This sense of fluid adaptability, I mm. think, is is really exciting. That's, I think, more hopeful than these sort mm. of uh, mirages of control. Mm. I love that. That's fascinating. It makes me think of a quote. I think it's Einstein. He said something like, our challenges won't be overcome with the same thinking that created them. So we do need that kind of and to create the spaces that allow that new thinking. I think sometimes, as you were saying earlier, the kind of rigidity of institutions and some organisations can get in the way of that. So, yeah, there's something incredibly freeing about what you're saying too and exciting. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for being with us. I think we could have kept speaking for some time. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. It's, it's lovely to have the opportunity to talk about this this work and, and these ideas and I'm really inspired by the, the work that you're both doing with the podcast it's it's wonderful thank you thanks very much I really enjoyed that Elizabeth <laughs> oh, yeah we could have kept speaking for ages I reckon yeah yeah and what I, I came away with lots of different things but but one of them was around uh, how Peter talked about hope, um, which felt it kind of imbued the magic that he talked about, you know, during the podcast, but also, you know, that sense of responsibility and resilience um, and that we don't have to carry it all ourselves, that, you know, we are part of networks and, and can can be adaptive. Um, so, yeah, I'm coming away feeling hopeful but I feel like in quite a grounded way. Yeah, it, yeah, in a way that I think he kind of anchored it to some really, a few really practical examples and certainly like really mm. helpful ways of thinking about how to approach this whole process. Like, yeah, I love the idea of the murmurations, the starling murmurations mm. and n- no one carries the whole thing. We have to instead mm. find our place in that system and respond to what's going on around us. And if the whole kind of mass, if the whole population did that, it would be a very elegant um, movement perhaps mm. I really like that and I liked how we talked about kind of creating the conditions for change so it isn't always about mm. doing doing and, and and kind of you know having to always prove outcomes and and show all mm. this kind of action it's more it's as much about what is our mindset in this and how are we approaching this and are we asking the right questions in the first place so that we can then take mm. the right actions and do the right things so that idea of the questions being as important as as the answers and the outcomes mm. I think really lodged with me as well and actually speaking to questions it's even as, as Peter touched on the idea of permission the permission to even ask questions and and for us individually or collectively to name where we where we don't know and and where we feel ignorant is incredibly powerful and important um, and starting to be able to, to to think about questions and then to to voice them yeah, and I, and I think in some ways, as I was hearing him say that, it almost gave me, I felt like I had more permission to be even doing this episode mm. of Unfurling, mm. actually, yeah. because we yeah. are as much a part of these decision-making processes in our own very unique contextual way as as the professors and as the, you know, the people mm. that do this for a living. And I think that was really um, liberating, actually. Yeah. Mm. When we were speaking before this interview we we I said something flippant like 
you know, that you and I weren't numbers people mm. and that we were more about the kind of soft stuff and relationship and creative stuff. But actually, mm. we can be numbers people. You know, we mm. both do yeah. tax returns and we both, you know, have looked after budgets for organisations and you've done equivalent things that, like, we can be numbers yeah. people. Might not necessarily enjoy it. <laughs> and kind of quite dull at times, but but it's that that kind of we sometimes rule ourselves out of these processes don't we which then makes me think to school and you know people that did maths and physics and I I did physics at A level and really enjoyed it but but there was this kind of assumption that the mathsy numbersy physicsy stuff was for the smart people softer things like art and English literature were were less hard but actually Literature is hard. It's hard to be creative. It's hard to write a story or a poem. You know, it's a different kind of smarts. And I think just, yeah, yeah, this interview's kind of made me go back and, I guess, question some of that stuff as well, you know? Yeah, and and question, I I studied human sciences at university, which is essentially biology and social sciences. And I've always thought how much, it was great, but how even richer it could be with things like, economics and some politics and things so it's it's also not necessarily boxing ourselves into a certain you know we are numbers people or we are not but it's it's kind of bringing possibilities into studies but also just how we are wherever we are listening today you know allowing for that yeah and in the spirit of unfurling actually bringing Mm. worlds together joining Mm. up conversations and actually we all need to do that from Mm. wherever we're sitting I think Peter also, I think, touched on the kind of scalability of this Mm. stuff. Um, And it's interesting to see that in practice. So he talked about the context of the county of Cornwall in Mm. England using this thinking. It's also being used at city level in Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is fascinating. And they, like from day one in the process, brought together all the different departments and decision makers, which was kind of unprecedented to get everyone around the table. I think there's some really inspiring work going on there. And also the the nation of Costa Rica is using this thinking in their thinking about, I think it's called regenerative, regenerative, they want to be a regenerative nation, that's it. So everything that comes with that, and they are using donut economics as a kind of starting point for some of their thinking, which I thought was really interesting. And then also just kind of while I'm thinking about other countries, it makes me think too of, so I've done quite, a bit of work and research in various countries in Africa and um, Peter touched on the idea of circular economics and the idea that nothing is wasted and I see how true that is in certain places more than other places I think. Um, Like here in the UK it can be incredibly hard to kind of you know challenge people's thinking around whether it's single-use plastics or recycling and all that stuff but actually when I've lived and been working in in various African contexts it's just the norm like you just don't waste things um plastic bottles can always be used for something else like holding cooking oil or whatever it might be um tractor tires I've got real clear images of this decades old tractor tire that had been fixed and fixed and stitched and you know healed so many times and was still going strong because Mm. people put the time into caring for it and and of course sometimes that's down to resources and and the finance and just not having the money to think any differently 
but but it's just it just feels far more a normal way mm. of being in, a, in in some of these contexts and I'm conscious that that can very easily sound or it could very easily sound you know I'm a white female sitting in the UK sort of talking quite idealistically about people not wasting things in mm. certain African contexts and that is a whole conversation but it comes to mind you know just the idea of waste is less of a thing in certain places yeah yeah and 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 at the same time it also brings in how quickly change can happen you know when I we I can't remember exactly when it was but in the last few years in the UK uh, legislation passed that you know you had to pay for your plastic bags and very quickly everyone was using (laughs) cloth bags Uh, I remember I lived in Germany to do my master's years ago and that was the norm then um so yeah I guess it's kind of seeing seeing economics within context the realities um but also the power of legislation when when needed um but also the power of individual mindset here as well and um it makes me when I when we've, we've been talking about growth it makes me me smile a bit because it makes me think of uh, the growth mindset which is something we talk about in coaching quite a lot and um and it, it makes me think really actually what is my mindset about growth really um yeah. so just flipping that a little bit just reflecting personally over the last I guess five years I've had two um two boys and have very consciously chosen part-time work that's been wonderful and again a very a, a real privilege to be able to do that I, I get approached by a lot of people on LinkedIn who say they can build a six-figure business for me and essentially, I remember replying to someone saying, actually, no, this isn't the right time for me. Um, I've got a baby and, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the amount of coaching that I'm doing right now. And I'm sure what you're offering is great. But equally, this is just where I'm at. And I think as we can start in our own lives and, and hopefully more collectively and in, in terms of our countries, thinking, you know, when is time for growth? You know, it doesn't have to be all the time. Um, can be can be really powerful. Mm. Yeah, and, and I love that Peter touched on that, this kind of assumption that the, the line on the graph just always needs to be going up. We mm. always need to be um, growing. And I guess touching on that slightly, I, I've noticed how in speaking to some people about ideas like donut economics, they try and place it and sort of say, well, is this is this about rethinking capitalism? Is this about socialism? Is this more like communism? Like, what? Is, which ism is it? And actually, it's something around, no, this is just a new kind of thinking. And um, it just asks different questions. And we don't have the answers yet. But it's that kind of shift from this is how we've always known and framed things to actually... No, like where is the world at now? Things are complex and far more interconnected, like COVID has shown us. What is that demand of our thinking? Mm. How, how do we come into that? And I think, as you say, legislation is a huge part of that. We've got COP26 happening mm-hmm. at the moment. It'll be interesting to see what legislation and policy comes from that. I know a lot of people aren't feeling very hopeful, other people more so. And I think that's a big piece of it. But I, I guess I'd be curious to speak to a lot of the delegates there and and ask them kind of, you know, what framework are you coming at this with? Is this is this about doing business as usual with some tweaks or is this about a real commitment to a, a, a shift of, you know, ways of being and working? It, I think that would be really interesting. As you say, the kind of the mindset attached to some of the dry stuff like legislation, I think it's... Um, yeah it's important Mm. so 
there's a lot here isn't there <laughs> yeah there's a lot here yeah I think we could do a whole podcast series just on donor economics let alone economics mm. um but we've we've started we've started our conversation here in unfurling and we hope that this has you know resonated with you or given you new insights piqued new questions and you know for those of you who are more well-versed in economics you know please do feedback to us and share resources and new ideas in the facebook group or just get in touch i guess as i step away from here i'm thinking you know as a listener i think just keeping it really simple is where are you at now with economics compared to where you were at the beginning of this um, this episode, and I guess one thing that you might like to to do as a result of it could be more learning, could be talking to someone that knows more about economics, whatever it is. I think as Peter mentioned, the bare minimum. You know, it's just starting. Just starting feels important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like Peter said, but it's it's an invitation to create space to step back and look mm. and, and, and decide where you want to look and what is working, what isn't working, what does all that mean for you? So I think, yeah, the idea of just looking, mm. I think it's certainly something we've tried to do today. We've looked in a particular place and had a conversation around that. Um, but yeah, this feels to be an ongoing conversation. Yeah. And I guess one last thing, just uh, bring us back to the natural world. It's just kind of been infused throughout just with the, the concept of donor economics. But just to read you a quote um, by Rachel Carson, uh, the marine biologist, uh, conservationist and writer of Silent Spring. Those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. And so with that, we wish you lots of resilience and strength, as well as fun, joy and wonder. Yeah, look forward to uh, being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. See you next time. See you next time.